This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and there is green on the screen everywhere you look. I don't know if you're following the stock market, but it is getting pretty intense out there. I never saw 1999. Well, I was around. I wasn't paying attention. Let's put it that way. But the that's what's you hear people talk about this being kind of 1999-like. And I saw the numbers yesterday, and everything's going up. Freeport McMorrin up 11%. Tech up 3.5%. Ivanhoe Mines up 5.5%. Newmont, not as much, but they've already had a pretty huge run-up. They're only up 0.36%. You know, even these juniors are going along with it. It is green everywhere, and... If you think that's impressive, the tech stocks are also going, I don't know if ballistic might be an overstatement. It might not. Amazon is now above $3,000 a share. Amazon is up, yesterday was up 5.77%. It is at $3,057.04. Yeah, all this liquidity, all this, you know, and meanwhile, the real economy, you don't get the sense it's there. As everybody says, the stock market is not the economy. We know that now after the last six weeks of rallying and analysis. But you do wonder when these things are going to meet or if they will. There's that classic book, This Time is Different. And kind of the classic mistake is thinking that this time is different. It was kind of the moral of the story as far as I understand. I never read that book. Anyways, things are starting to go a little bit parabolic. What was Tesla? Before we move on, Tesla, get this. Tesla was up 13.48%. So 13.5%. Tesla is now trading at $1,371 a share. Now that gives it a market cap of $254 billion. Now, another one I was looking at, finally, before we move on, Shopify. It's that shopping cart website out of Canada. Our biggest tech name, I think, right now, or second biggest. I'm not sure what would be bigger than that. They have a market cap of $122 billion. Now, just for context, within the mining industry, let's go back to Freeport. Freeport is has a market cap of $18.5 billion. So Shopify, $122, Freeport, 18. And continuing on this, Newmont, let's see what Newmont is trading at their market cap. It's 49.1. Let's round that up to $50 billion. Again, Shopify is trading at $122 billion. Square is another one. You know that little finance app? I mean, they're sort of getting lumped in with fintech now. Uh, They have a, a market cap bigger than Newmont, they're at $52 billion, and that's that little square card reader. You probably know it. They've been around for, you know, probably 15 years. I mean, to Square's credit, I had one of those back when I was in Montreal, and that's going on, geez, eight or nine, 10 years ago. So maybe they're 10, 15 years old, but nevertheless, they're trading at $52 billion. They were up 4.92%. I saw earlier in the day they were up 11%. Anyway, there is green on the screen, we have a special treat for you today. 
we have Jeffrey Christian from CPM Group, and we're going to get a really cool insider's view of really what Jeffrey Christian is up to on a day-to-day basis, really what they're trying to do. And he talked about the coronavirus a bit and how it's not like your typical recession, which I think we could all think that's all common sense, I think. And he also talked about how there are methodologies for analyzing commodity markets. As he says, they try not to take a bullish or bearish view. As he says really eloquently in the interview, people pay us to be right. What's interesting is it sounds like they do a lot of their own research. This other great quote that I dug up, a lot of times what you read on the screen is just not true or accurate. They do their own research at CPM Group, and they're not just relying on data coming from somewhere else. And that's a very interesting thing to say because, again, Jeffrey Christian is a very credible guy. Okay, so when Jeffrey Christian says stuff like the things you see on the screen are just not true or accurate when you're talking about financial data, that's pretty interesting. So, yeah, so there's lots to get into here. Finally, Jeffrey Christian critiques the computer models and This is also super interesting because he's saying that computer models use history. So it doesn't provide for what we might call novelty or for newness coming into history and for new things happening. And so that's a really interesting kind of what I'd consider a simple but profound critique of computer-based modeling and prediction, so-called AI, And finally, uh, he talks about electric vehicles, and Frick really did his research on this because apparently Jeffrey Christian wrote a book on electric vehicles back in 1979, and that was the year I was born, actually. So that's pretty impressive, and what was really interesting about what he said, uh, Frick was asking him about, you know, how much of this is hype, what's real, what's really going on? And he basically says that it's going to happen a lot slower than people expect. And I thought the real revelatory statement here was electric vehicles are not nearly as clean as everybody thinks. So that is coming up. A great part one of our interview with Jeffrey Christian that took place at the Canadian Mining Symposium just a few short weeks ago. And yeah, before we move on, I also wanted to just give a... Shout out to YMP Toronto. They have a tweet, feeling charitable, want to give back. Here's an opportunity to do that while establishing your personal network in mining. The YMP Scholarship Fund is looking for a new volunteer to help us grow. Send us a note and your CV to toronto at youngminingprofessionals.com. So they are looking for a volunteer. If you have aspirations in the mining sector, I say that's a great place to park yourself. Also, in general news from our friends around the industry, PDAC is calling for nominations for the Bill Dennis Award, which is presented to an individual or team of explorationists. I didn't know that was a word. Explorationists for a Canadian discovery or prospecting success. Nominate now for this award, and you can find the link on PDAC's Twitter feed. 
And that about wraps it up. So if you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. Find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we host this podcast. And wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to our next third part of our Mining Minute with the beautifully named Adrian Dance. And he is principal metallurgist consultant at SRK Consulting. And let's get to Mr. Dance. And joining us now is Adrian Dance, who is principal consultant in metallurgy for SRK Consulting. And tell me, Adrian, what kind of challenges do you often face as a mineral processor or as a metallurgist? Well, I have to say, essentially, the these days, a lot of the deposits that we're assessing are, are lower in grade than we would like, lower in grade than they have been over decades ago. Increasingly, the grades of our deposits are low. On top of that, there is a greater frequency of contaminant elements so that the final saleable product is contaminated with, uh, say, arsenic or antimony or bismuth, makes it difficult to sell. And in some cases, it, the material is very, very hard, which means it's difficult to, uh, to process without incurring a lot of costs, such as grinding power. So have there been a lot of uh, technological developments then? I imagine there must be in order to just improve the grade. And because it seems like these projects, they're getting lower and lower grade, as you're pointing out. And so uh, I, I guess what kind of technological developments have you guys been doing in order to help with that? Well, that's an excellent question. And in the area that I'm really putting a lot of my energy into right now is that what can we do to overcome this grade deficiency, this grade challenge projects that I see all the time? And at SRK, we're working at the idea of reversing those grades and actually improving it by rejecting the barren material or the waste as soon as possible. And that's an area of great focus. There's, there's technologies out there, including uh, bulk sorting, particle sorting, even just screening the material can improve the grade. And we're looking at opportunities to take a material that's really low in grade and improve it without incurring a lot of costs before we start processing it. And just very briefly, is that environmentally, it sounds more environmentally friendly as well. Oh, absolutely. Because any particle, any piece of material that doesn't go through the plant doesn't end up in the tailings pond. Uh, processing typically is done wet, is done to a fine grind, and it ends up in a tailings pond. So all the material that you can bypass a plant will not end up in the tailings pond, which is something we as an industry really need to head towards of eliminating or, re or reducing our footprint in the tailings as, as, uh, as quickly as we possibly can. And, and the society is, is driving us that way as well. Yeah, you definitely see it in the news items and all the move towards ESG. Uh, with investors. So thank you, Adrian Dance, Principal Consultant in Metallurgy with SRK Consulting. And we will see you next week for our final installment. Thank you, Adrian. And if you'd like to learn more about Mr. Dance and his expertise, simply go to srk.com. And I will also have a link to his profile page in the show notes. And that is also on srk.com and as well as his LinkedIn. So thank you once again, SRK Consulting, for sponsoring the podcast. And now on to the news. And yeah, the coronavirus is hitting Peru's mining sector pretty hard. Uh, they talk about the Americas being the 
place where things are really getting out of hand, but it's kind of everywhere now. Uh, India and Russia continue to be pretty intense. I'm not looking at the numbers that closely as we all were two months ago. It's like you wake up and you stare at the numbers for half an hour. Anyway, let's take a look at what's going on in Peru. Uh, Cecilia Jamazmi from Mining.com has this report. Mining companies operating in Peru are being forced to keep operations suspended and halt new ones as confirmed coronavirus cases in the country jump past 300,000 on Sunday, with several of the new infections happening in the copper sector. Trevally Mining said on July 3rd that a total of 82 workers had tested positive for COVID-19 at its Satander mine, which would remain halted. The company had suspended operations in June after 19 workers tested positive. The number of confirmed cases now comprises nearly 30% of the total workforce of the mine. You know, it's interesting. The sentiment, we're not where we were in late March, but the numbers are pretty horrific. And like we were saying last week, this just has to be at top of mind for all mine operators, all mine executives, is keeping your mine open. Because I imagine these shutdowns are extremely expensive. Continuing on, London-based Hochschild Mining halted operations on Monday at its flagship in Maculada Silver Mine after, quote, a number, end quote, of workers there tested positive for coronavirus. So you're kind of not being too uh, forthcoming there. The mine will now operate with a reduced workforce running care and maintenance activities at the site. The company expects to resume operations as soon as a safe and healthy workforce can return to site. And its Palancada Silver Gold Mine in Peru and the San Jose Mine in Argentina do remain open. Moving on, Fortuna Silver Mines is also suspending operations at its Keloma Mine for two weeks. And the decision follows the sudden death of a 34-year-old contractor employee on July 5th. The Vancouver-based miners said the cause of death had not been determined, but the worker had completed a health check, including a COVID-19 test, which was negative. So it sounds like this may not be coronavirus-related why they shut down the site. Japan's Mitsui Mining and Smelting seems to have the situation under control. As it said on Monday, it had resumed operations at its two zinc mines in Peru last week. The company's Wanzala and Palka mines had been suspended for more than three months to limit the spread of the disease. The death toll from the virus in Peru, the world's number two copper producer, now stands at 10,589, the tenth highest in the world, based on data from John Hopkins University. In terms of confirmed cases, the Andean country is fifth highest in the world. So interesting goings on in Peru with this coronavirus it's, you know, it's like it's a news cycle that everybody's just sick of, but nature is not a news cycle. I think that's, to me, that's one of the big kind of morals of the story. We live almost in this hyper-real world where it's just all narrative, rhetoric, uh, persuasion. And what's so interesting about this virus is it's just rock-hard reality. It's nature, and it refuses, it's, it doesn't bend to our rhetorical persuasions. It doesn't bend if we're bored. It doesn't bend to any of our news cycles. It doesn't care. I think it's a real lesson to our world, which thinks that everything is simply words. So debatable point. Leave comments if you like. I'm always happy for debates. That's part of why we go into this business. 
Moving on, Saul Gold offers $140 million for Cornerstone Capital. It's also by Cecilia Jamasmi. And Saul Gold is trying to buy Cornerstone Capital Resources, which owns a minority stake in the Alpala Copper Gold Project, part of the Ecuador-focused miners' Cascabel asset. It sounds like they just want to buy out someone who has a stake in their main asset in Ecuador, which is becoming a very interesting area. We have another story, which we're not going to report here. Um, but it's on Lundin Gold has reopened its Fruta del Norte mine in Ecuador, which is a massive project. And what's interesting about that one, just quickly, is I think it was February 20th, they began commercial production and then they had to shut down right away. Anyways, they reopened. So that's that story in a nutshell. Back to Sol Gold. The $140 million all stock offer is Sol Gold's second attempt to take over the Ontario based junior, referring to Cornerstone Capital Resources and would see the bidder pay $3.90 per share. That is a 22% premium to its closing price of $3.19 on June 29th. Now, what's kind of interesting, you might say, well, why are you, this is just a little junior story. It sounds like it's a pretty big asset, and I think BHP has a stake in it, and here we are. Diversified majors particularly favor large-scale, long-life projects, such as the one Sol Gold promises. BHP upped its stake in the company last year to 15.31% from 14.7%, becoming the miners' top shareholder. So when BHP has an eye out for you and is putting their money where their mouth is, that's why this is story number two. It's a pretty significant project. Just getting some numbers on this project before we move on. Actually, they just got a $150 million from Franco Nevada in May. So that also adds, so this is no slouch of a project. Here we go. Over the first 25 years of mining, the average annual production is expected to be 207,000 tons copper, 438,000 ounces of gold, and 1.4 million ounces of silver. That's pretty impressive for annual production. I always like to use our Barrick and uh, Newmont as guides. Remember, that's 5 million ounces gold per year that they are striving for for the next 10 years, or at least that's what's Barrick's 10-year plan. So if you think of 5 million ounces per year, and then we look at Sol Gold, they won't think they can produce 438,000 ounces of gold. So that's 10% of Barrick's goal. And that's just to mention the gold. And then it looks like there's a whole bunch of copper and silver. Anyway, Sol Gold offers 140 million to Cornerstone Capital. And you can read the rest of that online at northernminer.com. And continuing on, Cobalt Metals employs big data and scientists in pursuit of battery metals. And this was also a very interesting story done by Editor-in-Chief Trish Saywell. And Cobalt Metals is investing in battery metal projects using big data and scientific computing with capital from billionaires including Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. The privately held California-based company has also lured David Broughton, the world-renowned expert in sediment-hosted copper deposits, to lead its hydrothermal systems team. You know, I like this story because it's kind of a moment we've all been kind of waiting for, but it's still kind of slow going, which is this idea that tech will eventually fuse with mining. And space is also one of those kind of junction points. And to me, this story is a sign of that progression. And it's like they say, you know, how do these companies grow? And it's not like 
this isn't Amazon. This is money from Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos' personal money is my impression. But you do have to ask yourself these questions. I mean, we were looking at the stock prices earlier in this episode. How do these companies continue to grow? You know, you listen to commentaries, uh, oh, well, Amazon needs to go into healthcare and education. Like these are big enough where they can move the needle on growth because they're already so huge. I think Amazon's close to one and a half trillion dollars market cap. So let's turn back to this. So they have brought on world-renowned expert in sediment-hosted copper deposits, David Broughton. And we hear from Josh Goldman, Cobalt Metals Chief Financial and Technical Officer. Um, and he's talking about Broughton. Quote, we have the overwhelming majority of his time. David is very substantially involved. Can't say I would love it if someone was saying, we own a whole bunch of his time. <laughs> Anyways... I wonder if there will be blowback on that interview. We have an overwhelming majority of his time, Josh Goldman. Who knows? Maybe he'll be thrilled and he loves the project and there's nothing to say there. Broughton worked for Ivan Platts, now Ivanhoe Mines, from January 2008 through October 2016 and was co-awarded PDAC's Thaler, Lindsay, and AMI's Colin Spence Awards for world-class discoveries at Kamoa in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Platte Reef in South Africa. Goldman, who holds a PhD in physics from Harvard University, explains that the exploration company is a little bit unusual. This is a quote. It's a little bit unusual in that more than half of the staff are data scientists and engineers. A harbinger of the future, perhaps. My commentary here. Is this a harbinger of the future? Is the mining company of the future populated with data scientists and engineers? I say yes. On the technology side of the house, he says, quote, they are folks with deep backgrounds in the physical sciences, people with PhDs in physics, geophysics, and experimental quantum computing. Just want to jump up and cheer when I hear that. Quote, it's fantastic because we have these amazing data scientists who get to work with very well-esteemed geological scientists and can understand the interplay and apply all manner of statistical methodologies and lots of experience in the field. A lot of this is difficult to quantify, but that combined is what makes this program so potent. Just a little bit more, the quote continues, what it comes down to is having a system that allows us to aggregate and work with an extra amount of data and then apply machine learning, as well as expert geological insight based on an ore body and apply the best of both approaches to guide our exploration program, end quote. And Trish writes, it also comes down to patient capital. The exploration startup is backed by California venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz, as well as Breakthrough Energy Ventures, a fund set up by Bill Gates in 2015 with money from a coalition of private investors, including Amazon founder Jeff Bezos and Virgin Group founder Richard Branson. Okay, so... I could imagine Jeff Bezos reading this story and being like, I don't remember giving money to these guys. Sounds like Jeff Bezos gave Bill Gates Breakthrough Energy Ventures fund this money and that Breakthrough Energy Ventures are the ones who are investing in cobalt metals. All right. So just to be clear on that. And Andreessen Horowitz, I mean, that's pretty much the gold standard in private venture capital out of Silicon Valley. And continuing, uh, we want to put great capital to work in great projects, says Goldman. And Cobalt's primary focus is, okay, this is just Trish again, Cobalt's primary focus is hunting for cobalt deposits and has state claims in northeastern Saskatchewan, my home province, 
up to the province's border with the Northwest Territories. Quote, the one in Saskatchewan is very Greenfield. It's a potential new camp, but it's very unconstrained. That sounds like Saskatchewan. <laughs> sounds like Saskatchewan in a nutshell. Very Greenfield, but very unconstrained. The other one we have in the public domain is in a historic camp where we think there's a ton of additional exploration potential. It's a very large established camp in Canada. Scrolling down, even some of the industry's larger mining companies are, quote, excited about potentially working with us, he says. I imagine. I think this is a bit of an overdue moment. And so, yeah, you can take a closer look. Interesting. Lithium, they're not as excited about. That's all in the article. You can read that on northernminer.com. It's three or four stories down by Trish Saywell. Cobalt Metals employs big data scientists in pursuit of battery metals. Moving right along, there's a report by a series of 142 scientists, community groups, and NGOs from 24 countries, and they have set a series of 16 guidelines for safer storage of mine waste. The name of the article is Tailings Dam Should Have Zero Harm. These guidelines, put together by this group of 142 entities, aimed to protect communities, workers, and the environment from the risks posed by thousands of mine waste storage facilities, which are failing more frequently and with more severe outcomes. And the report is called Safety First, Guidelines for Responsible Mine Tailings Management. And they argue that the ultimate goal of tailings management must be zero harm to people and the environment and zero tolerance for human fatalities. You know, I wonder if, like, you know, who doesn't agree with that? I almost wonder if that's already the goal. And they're just failing when we see these failures like we saw in Brazil. But it sounds like, nevertheless, these guys want stricter measures and they're offering 16 guidelines. And yeah, let's not forget, last year, a tragic dam collapse in Brazil killed 270 people and destroyed the town of Brumadinho and came on the heels of tailings dam failures at the Mount Pauli mine in Canada and the Samarco mine in Brazil, another one in Brazil, among others. The guidelines come as the Global Tailings Review, co-convened by the International Mining Industry Association, or ICMM. Investors and the UN Environmental Program prepares to unveil the first global tailings standards, quote, for the safer management of tailings storage facilities, end quote. Now, here are some of the details from the report. The report asserts that tailings storage facilities must be built and managed only with community consent, Again, you sort of think, like, are they not building these with community consent? Respecting human rights and the rights of indigenous people and adopt the best available technologies and practices. Guidelines include the international safety protocols must be independent of company control and must be established through multi-stakeholder processes that actively engage workers, community, and civil society. Sounds like they want external bodies kind of overseen the tailings dams. Strong standards for tailings dams must ensure financial guarantees and accountability at the highest level of corporate governance, the report maintains. Public participation in decisions and reliable whistleblower and grievance mechanisms are necessary to ensure that communities and workers can raise the alarm without consequences, the report states. And here it is, quote, we need independent guidelines on tailings safety, says Carolina de Moura of Asociacio Comunitaria da Yangada, Brumadinho, Brazil. Continuing the quote, we urgently need guidelines and regulations to manage toxic mine waste dams. We hope that the case of Brumadinho becomes a milestone and an inflection point for mining across the world. 
Governments and international institutions need to move urgently to implement these 16 guidelines to end mine waste failures worldwide. Industry self-regulation will not provide adequate protection. There must be a strong global response to this global problem, putting safety first. And finally, this was also a very interesting article, Energy Fuels to Upgrade Uranium Processing Facility to Include Rare Earths. And this is by Valentina Ruiz Leotod of Mining.com. As the United States pushes to dilute China's monopoly on rare earths and develop a domestic supply, Colorado-based Energy Fuels is working towards being at the forefront of the race. Energy Fuels is the owner of the White Mesa Mill in Utah, the only fully licensed and operating conventional uranium mill in the United States. The facility is normally used to process radioactive ore and produce yellow cake, but now some areas are likely to be transformed to allow for the processing of uranium rare earth ores. Right, because rare earths often seem to have uranium or radioactive elements in the ores with them. They're not alone, so it's a really messy thing to process. So it sounds like energy fuels, it looks like they want to upgrade their White Mesa mill to basically, they already process uranium there to make yellow cake. They're saying we can also do the uranium rare earth ores that are mixed together, and we might as well process the rare earths. And here's a quote from Mark Chalmers, president and CEO of Energy Fuels, who told Mining.com, quote, Our rare earth elements program intends to make the mill available for miners to process their uranium rare earth ores in the U.S. Such a facility does not currently exist. According to Chalmers, the mill's ability to remove and recover uranium and manage the radioactive byproducts from rare earth ore potentially makes it a key link in the U.S. rare earth supply chain. This is because many rare earth separation facilities are unable to handle uranium or the radioactive byproducts due to technical or regulatory reasons, which explains why China's rare earth industry is closely tied to its nuclear industry. Quote, we are simply looking to do something similar in the U.S., the mining executive said. And so Valentina Ruiz Leotode actually did an interview with Mark Chalmers, and you can find it below in that article. So simply go to Energy Fuels to Upgrade Uranium Processing Facility to include rare earths. What a great story from Valentina. And yes, that is available on northernminer.com. And now let's turn to metal prices. prices, we would like to thank our friends once again at Infomine.com for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on July 7th, gold is trading at $1,776.35. That is $9 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading at $18.05 per ounce. That is 21 cents higher than last week's quote. Platinum is trading at $824.23 per ounce. That is $11 higher than last week's quote. Palladium is trading at $1,926.99. And that is trading $20 higher than last week's quote. And on July 3rd, 
Copper is trading at $2.73 per pound. That is a penny higher than last week. Aluminum is unchanged at $0.72 cents per pound. Lead is a penny lower at $0.80 cents per pound. Nickel is at $5.91 per pound. That is $0.15 cents higher than last week's quote. Tin is $0.02 cents lower at $7.69 per pound. Cobalt is unchanged at $12.93. And zinc is a penny lower at $0.92 cents per pound. So the wind is still at the back of metals, is the long and the short of it. Nothing really breaking down too badly, and things are consolidating or moving higher. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Jeffrey M. Christian, managing partner at CPM Group. And CPM Group is a precious metals and commodities research and consulting company he founded in 1986 in a buyout of the Goldman Sachs Commodity Research Group that he managed at the time. And he is interviewed by Mining.com executive editor Frick Els. And this was at the Canadian Mining Symposium just a few weeks ago that we held on Zoom. And this is part one of a two-part interview. So I hope you enjoy it. And we will see you on the other side. Lots to talk about, so I'm almost going to jump right in. You are a managing partner and founder of the CPM Group, and you um, you did that by buying out uh, Goldman Sachs Commodities Research Unit. <laughs> so that was in 1990, uh, 1986. Not that long that after, there, it was Black Monday, and uh, you could say we are living in a s- similar, interesting times, to say the least. How do you navigate? A black swan event or however you want to want to term it like uh, we're living through today well I think what we're living through today is radically different from Black Monday in October of 87 and it's also radically different from pretty much any other recession or financial crisis that we've seen at least since World War II you know we have a pandemic that's going on that has uh, similarities to the Spanish influenza of 1918-1920. And we have a global recession that has really been created by governments responding to that pandemic. And it's important to understand that, you know, if you go back, and it's funny because in 2018, 2019, there were any number of people who kept saying, well, we're imminently on, on, on the threshold of a, we're on the threshold of an imminent recession. And it didn't happen. And we kept saying, no, 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 you know, there's, there's a lot of strength in the economy. We do expect a recession at some point, but not in 2018, not in 2019. And in January, we were saying not in 2020. And the reason we were saying that was that you had relatively decent growth in, in real GDP and economic activity in most parts of the world. You had a lot of structural problems uh, that were building up, but they weren't such that you would think that they would throw us into a recession immediately. The recession came because the government shut down the economies. And that's very important to know because what that tells you is that the cause of the recession is radically different from any previous recession. And probably the way we come out of it is going to be too. And you saw yesterday industrial production figures come out for the United States. You know, March and April were really bad. May started to see some very strong recoveries already. 
And, and so there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty there because you just don't know how it's going to shake out, um, you know, and, and um, therefore I'm not convinced, you know, when I hear people talk about, well, past recessions and past recoveries, I don't necessarily use those models. Right. Are you in the, in the V-shaped recovery or the U-shaped or the L-shaped recovery camp? I've searched online to see what the name of the symbol is that you use for square roots, uh, because that's the, the thing. I think that you'll see a relatively fast initial recovery, and then you're going to see the sort of very slow growth in recovery, similar to what we saw in 2012 to 2015, 2016. Right. So I think that, you know, coming out, you'll see a rebound. Uh, but then I think after that, you're going to see probably relatively slower growth to get back to where we were. Right. Um, bringing it back to mining and metals specifically, the pandemic definitely shut off what seemed to be a, like a cyclical recovery in, in the commodity markets. Mm -hmm. Do you think it will be possible just to kind of pick up where we left off? Well, you know, one of the big questions that economists are talking about is, you know, how fast do we come back? How far do we come back? And there are some people who say, well, we may come back 90%. We may come back 80%. And that's terrible because if you think about it, that means that you've lost 10 to 20% of the economic activity that you had prior to the, the recession. I think that ultimately we will get back to where we were, but it's could take many years. I do think that we'll recover 80 or 90% relatively quickly in the period 2021, 2022. But beyond that, I think then it becomes much more difficult. And in terms of demand for a lot of metals, I think there are going to be some major structural changes in the way the world works. Right. You'll be buying more bicycles and fewer cars. And I think that that will probably have a range of impacts on different metals different ways. So we know that many banks are closing their metals desks. We also have kind of seems frequent stories about huge losses in metals trading. At your 30 years on, uh, CPM seems to be thriving. How would you describe your approach and how is it different maybe from other participants in, in this market? Well, you know, CPM Group is a fundamentally macroeconomically driven research consulting company. So we're not a bank, we're not a sell-side institution. Most of our work is with buy-side institutions, high net worth individual investors, family offices, mining companies, governments, central banks. We do do some work for the sell-side. The sell-side's going through some major structural changes, and some of those are related to metals and mining, and some of them transcend it, and they have much broader roots in the overall financial markets and the way things are changing. And the same is true on, on, on the buy side too. CPM Group has done well because we are a fundamentally research-driven consulting company. So we do a lot of fundamental research that other people don't do. Right. A lot of people rely on what they read on the screen. And a lot of times what you read on the screen is just not true or accurate. In addition to that, coming out of J. Aaron and Goldman Sachs, we have a lot of experience and expertise in the financial aspects of commodities and how the commodities trade and how people actually use trades and you know uh, the leasing of metal from the point where it's shipped from the mine through the smelter the concentrator the various fabricators the wholesalers the retailers stuff that a lot of desk analysts just don't know yeah. um, in addition to that if you look at a lot of the other people in the business, 
they're either selling or they're marketing or they're buying. And CPM Group advises those guys, but we have a, a dispersed exposure to the markets. So people pay us to be right. They don't pay us to be bullish. They don't pay us to be bearish. They don't, you know, they want us to be right. And, and I think that that has helped us a lot. And it's helped us in the last few months because there's been so much confusion about what's really going on and we're the guys who understand it. Yeah, I mean, you were, you were working in commodities markets when the Hunt brothers uh, <laughs> sent the silver price yeah. up 700% in a single year. But I mean, it's not just schemes like that that make metals markets volatile. You just have to look at palladium over the last couple of years. Um, what are some of the golden rules for, uh, for investors how to get on the right side of a trade? How, how to spot a, a fake trend from a real one? I'll start by saying, you know, if you go back to 1978, 79 into 1980, you know, the Hunt brothers weren't the major cause for that price. And the, the Hunts didn't try to corner the market the way a lot of people think. The Hunts saw this coming years earlier and started buying silver and silver futures and, and some silver options uh, that were available in the OTC market because they saw the price of silver rising. And if you go back to that period of time, you had 14% inflation, uh, you had uh, a quadrupling of the oil price, you had the second oil uh, crisis, you had all sorts of really bad economic and financial market events. And that caused the gold price to rise, as well as the silver price and platinum and palladium and rhodium and copper went from 65 cents to $1.80. So, you know, clearly it wasn't the hunts playing in the silver market that drove the prices up. There are a lot of black swans, for want of a better word, that are out there. And I think that what you do, there are a couple of things, I would point out, you cannot anticipate what they are, but you can anticipate that they're going to occur. So you prepare and you manage your portfolio of investments or whatever it is you're doing, in the expectation that those kinds of events will occur every so often, that they won't be terminal. We're not gonna see the destruction of the global financial system that's existed pretty much for the last 500 years, but they will be severe. That's one thing. The other thing is, and this is very important now, because we've seen so many people shift from fundamental and macroeconomic analysis to computer-generated trading issues. And the problem with computer-generated trading issues is that those computer models are based on the history. And you can go through all kinds of things from pharmaceuticals to mining exploration and discoveries of, of new deposits to metals price behavior. And what you find is that events are anomalous. And if you build a model that is based on history and you try to do whatever you're doing based on that model, you'll only repeat history and you'll miss the new things that are coming. And you see that in the financial markets, you see it in mining exploration. These guys are using computer models based on previous discoveries of large gold properties, but every major gold field that's ever been discovered has been a geological anomaly. So if you're looking for, if you tell a computer, find me rocks that look like past discoveries, you'll never find the next discovery. Right. And that's why you don't have good returns in the exploration business right now. And the same is true in the financial markets. You know, if you're relying on these models that are based on previous uh, activity, you're going to get it wrong. You saw this last year. People kept talking about the inverted yield curve and how every time you saw an inverted yield curve in U.S. Treasuries from World War II through 2008, 
it coincided more or less with the recession. But the financial system, the monetary system have been completely changed since 2008. You know, and if you're relying on a model that is based on pre-2008 interactions between financial markets and the economy, you're missing what's going on now. Yeah, I mean, we have to talk gold. We can't talk gold <laughs> if, uh, if it's hovering near six-year highs or seven-year highs. Um, I mean, I've, I've obviously, I've read countless uh, explanations of what drives the gold price. And the one that always sort of stumps me is it's, it's the safe haven buy. So we, just this morning, uh, clashes on the border between India and China, uh, you know, killing 20 people. I didn't see a real reaction to the gold price. I seem to remember not that long ago, if something uh, went wrong in the Middle East, you know, there would be a nice spike in the gold price. How do you interpret that relationship? Yeah, I make the tongue-in-cheek observation that those events that are important to gold are important to gold. Uh, the Falklands War had no effect on gold because there was not a lot of gold trading in the South Atlantic. In 1987-88, the U.S reflagged Kuwaiti oil tankers and sailed the seventh fleet into the Persian Gulf for the first time. Right. People in Europe and the United States and North America thought, well, this has got to be very bullish. The U.S. Navy is now getting involved in the Iran-Iraq war. In fact, the gold price dropped like $100. You call up your clients in the Gulf region and you say, what's going on? They say, our problem just got solved. It's now the U.S. Navy's. Yeah. So it was a reduction. So if you look at what's going on in the Kashmir, there's not a lot of gold being bought up in the cashmere. The, the events, I mean, you know, one of the things I did a paper on in university in the 70s was the border war between China and India in 1962 in the Northeast Frontier uh, Agency. This has been going on for a long time. The Indian market is shut down. I mean, imports into India of gold are off 99% over the last two months. People can't buy gold, even if they wanted to, but the skirmishes up on in the Kashmir, A, those things have been going on since the late 50s. Not this bad, but there's always been troops staring at each other and getting into fist fights and stuff like that. So I think that the Indians and the Chinese are looking at and saying, okay, this is bad, but it's not as dangerous as you might think. So it's just not that important to go. Since we're in that part of the world, um, you wrote a book, Commodities Rising, in 2006. And uh, that was when China's impact on mining and metals demand uh, were really becoming significant. And of course, in 2020, uh, China is a whole different economy. How much will mining and metals be tethered to the Chinese economy and Chinese investment and infrastructure, etc.? China is the second largest economy in the world. It will be at some point, maybe 30 years from now, the largest economy in the world. If you go back to 1820, at the start of the Industrial Revolution, China accounted for about a third of world GDP. Right. The United States was less than 1%, I believe. It was, less, it was not in the top 10. And if you add India to that, China and India alone were half of world GDP. Right. The third largest economy was Russia, Norris, Russia, China and India opted out of the Industrial Revolution. Right. Now they're playing catch up. 
And if you talk to the Chinese and you talk to the United Nations and the OECD and you look at projections, China is growing. You know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was 5% of the world GDP. It's probably about 15% now. The United States, when I was in university in the 70s, was at 40% of world GDP. It's about 21% now. So the U.S. is contracting as a percentage of GDP, even as the U.S. economy is growing. Uh, but China is gain, gaining strength. And if you go forward, China will be the largest economy. It will continue to be the largest consumer of a, a range of commodities, agricultural and energy, as well as metals, a whole range of metals. It will also be a big producer of some of these things. Yeah. So China is going to remain incredibly important to the metals markets forever. And uh, the follow-up question has to be, can India do the same? And thank you, my dear listener, for so two, joining two us China. once again. I have to be on the Northern Miner podcast. I mean, I love no, India. We are on episode 193. We're veering but in India on 200 episodes. Vibrant that is only less than two months away. From growing as rapidly so thank as you China once again for joining us. There if you want to help the podcast, leave us a five-star review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. Real GDP growth. Until next week, China. take care. India can grow and it can come out of that box. So can Indonesia. Uh, you know, all of these other countries, Indonesia, India, Russia even, uh, they have a lot of political, economic, social constraints that are keeping them from growing as well and as strongly and as healthfully as they could. And China, partly because of its managed economy, nature has been able to overrule a lot of those internal tensions and stresses and, and do it. If India got its act together, India could be another China. And um, the mining industry, loves a good story. Mining uh, needs a narrative. And uh, the narrative at the moment, I think, is electric vehicles and batteries and green energy. You wrote a book on electric vehicles. And I have to say that book came out in 1979. So you have been looking at this market for a little bit longer than uh, the likes of me have. Um, how do you separate the story uh, that's in the market how do you separate the hype versus the reality when it comes to electric cars and green energy storage, et cetera, and the impact on mining? Again, it's, you cannot believe anything. You have to think, not believe. Uh, but you have to do that analysis. You have to do the fundamental analysis. I don't know if it's still true, but like two years ago, one of the hedge funds that we work with basically bought everybody's long-term outlook for lithium and said, CPM Group is the only company doing long-term lithium projections that has secondary recovery of lithium from batteries in its projected supply. And if you think about it, if electric vehicles come along and start using enormous volumes of battery, lithium batteries, and you have ESS, elect electricity storage systems, also using them, you're gonna have so many lithium ion batteries ending their useful life that you're going to have to recover that lithium. And so when we look at these markets, again, we try not to be bullish or bearish. We try to get it right. So when we looked at lithium, we said, okay, you look at the lithium supply. There are several factors in electric vehicles. First off, you look at lithium supply and you look at the relative strength of SQM. And you say SQM probably obviates the need for any of these other lithium mines. And then if you plug in lithium 
recycling from spent batteries so much more. And then on the flip side, you look at the projections of the introductions of electric vehicles, and there's way too much optimism there. You know, we have, and our, our projections are pretty much in line with the ones that you get from the auto industry, which is that by 2030, 10 years from now, you might have eight or 10% of the cars being built being electric. Other people have 25, 30%, but you know, if you go back two years ago, they were 35, 40% of the cars by 2050. We have 35% of the cars being electric by 2050. So you have much too fast of a growth, and therefore you have much too growth, fast of growth in cobalt and lithium and other metals, and it doesn't make sense. In the fact of, in the face of cobalt, we were talking to the battery manufacturers and the researchers in the battery industry, and they were saying, look, you know, right now we're using 30% of our sulfate is cobalt sulfate and we want to go to 20% and then we want to go to 10%. And they've gone to 20%, so they've reduced their cobalt demand, their projected cobalt demand, 33% already, and now they want to reduce it another 50%. Right, right. So you could, you know, we were sitting there several years ago when the cobalt price was high and everybody was bullish on cobalt because there's not going to be enough cobalt for electric vehicles. We were saying, no, there will be enough, A, because the batteries won't come along as fast as people say. And second, they won't use as much cobalt. Right. Now, if you look at the electric vehicle market, there's not enough electricity to power these vehicles if we had them as fast. They're, the grids in most countries, with the possible exception of Germany, aren't strong enough and stable enough to handle that extra electricity. Right. And then you have all of the OEM manufacturers, the, the component manufacturers who supply the automakers, who are either small public companies that can't get financing or private companies that can't get financing. Right. And the auto industry is not really supporting them. And they say, look, we think we don't need one or two million electric vehicle motors a year. We think we need 30 million. And so you need to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on motor factories, but we're not going to guarantee you that we're gonna buy them because the technology keeps changing so fast. So there's no agreement to buy them. There's no financial support. There's no price support. There's no guarantee that we'll ever pay you a penny for those things. But we need you who cannot borrow money, or if you can, you're going to be paying 10, 12% for it. Uh, we need you to spend hundreds of billions of dollars to build all of these factories, everything from the metals to the batteries to the controllers to the motors. So you have these very big structural impediments to a rapid introduction of electric vehicles. Right. And that means that the demand for copper and nickel and cobalt and lithium will go a lot more slowly than people think. There is great government support though. Um, you always hear, you know, from, from municipal level, Paris banning diesel cars in the center of town to incentives that seem to go up and down uh, by a whim. Is that not going to be enough to really drive this? It's not going to be enough, and it's going to be interesting to see how it changes. In the early 1990s, the European Union decided, for some strange reason that I cannot explain, they decided that diesel fuel was cleaner than petrol. And so they put in subsidies for diesel fuel and diesel vehicles, and they browbeat the petroleum refiners to build diesel refining capacity. And diesel vehicles as a percent of, of light duty uh, passenger vehicles went from 10, 15% of the European market to 54% from the early 1990s until the mid aughties. And we were sitting there in the early 1990s as were other people saying, where do you get that diesel is cleaner? 
it's not cleaner, it's dirtier. And, and it's dirtier in a number of ways. Well, by the mid aughties they realized that they were wrong. Yeah. And so I guess it was actually the, the mid-teens, around 2014 or so, they got rid of their subsidies. And they said, oh, diesel's bad. And they got rid of them, and now you know diesel's gone from 54% to 34% of the market on its way down, probably lower. The same is going on with electric vehicles. Right. If you look at a BMW SUV run in Australia, where a lot of the electricity comes from coal, you put the carbon dioxide kicked out in mining the lithium, making the batteries, and running and charging the batteries. Mm. A, an electric BMW SUV uses more, kicks out more carbon dioxide than the diesel model in Australia. And these cars are not all that clean. And yeah. there's, there's a tremendous misinformation. And some of the people are saying it consciously. They're aware that they're saying things that are not true. Other people are just not aware of what they're saying. But there's this whole push that electric vehicles are clean. And electric vehicles are not nearly as clean as a lot of people think they are. And I think that that could come back and whack the electric vehicle industry the same way the diesel industry was whacked. Right. Diesel gate. Yeah. Right. Let's end it on Diesel Gate. <laughs> I love Jeffrey Christian. Always insightful. And Frick really brought out the best in Jeffrey Christian. We got a lot of background information. I've heard a ton of interviews with Jeffrey Christian. We've got some great new information in that. So join us next week and you will hear the second part of Jeffrey Christian's interview. In the meantime, if you want to help out the podcast, leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care. <laughs>